We ended last week talking about a long list of people that you would think have no business having anything to do with God. We talked about this series of people that you think would have nothing to do with God and God would have nothing to do with them. They're not his kind of people. Like this icon of Southern white racism in the 50s and the 60s, George Wallace, who was segregation. He embodied that. But we talked about how grace regularly does the impossible. It does the unexpected. It does the unanticipated. And it changes people. Nobody would have said that man's repentance was possible. Nobody would have ever imagined a day where he is sitting there hand in hand with African-American brothers and sisters, calling them brothers and sisters. But in 1972, he rolls his wheelchair down the aisle of a church on the anniversary of a march. He shut down. And he pleads for their forgiveness. And they're reconciled. And grace does the impossible in a man like that. We talked about C.S. Lewis, the guy who described himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England, who had just set out to put pen to paper to start writing about the fact that there is no God so that England could finally be free of the naivety of religion and believing that there is a God out there that we're accountable to. That's what Lewis had just set his life to. But grace did the impossible and this hardened what he described himself as a hard boiled atheist found his heart broken and melted by this God, met where he was with this grace. Saul of Tarsus, if you grew up here in the Bible, uh, you know the story of the Apostle Paul. He, you don't get more hate-filled, bigoted, morally superior than a guy like Saul. He was on his way to essentially burn some churches down. He was opposed to Jesus, opposed to the church, And Jesus meets them and he realizes, like Job said, I had heard about you, but now I have seen you. And Jesus says, your life is mine. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to send you out and you're going to be my mouthpiece to the ancient world all the way up until tonight. Even when this Paul met other Christians after his conversion, they didn't believe it. They were really worried. Is this kind of a, uh, is he trying to infiltrate us so he can get names and phone numbers and send the authorities after us? It was so impossible, so unexpected that this man would have his life turned around by that God. Nobody would have thought this holy, righteous God described in the Bible, revealed in the Bible would have anything to do with a hardened bigot and a hateful murderer like Paul. But Jesus did. We talked about Jackie Hill Perry, the Rosaria Butterfields of the world, and the millions and millions and millions of others, brothers and sisters now in our churches who were the collateral damage of a a culture's sexual insanity and idolatry. And you might think, especially if you're raised in a super conservative church, Jesus would never set his eyes on people like that in relationships like they were. He would never give a thought for them. He would never pursue them. He would never have anything to do with those kind of people. And yet, Jackie Hill Perry describes the night when Jesus made himself unignorable in her bedroom. She had no intention to follow him. Don't you know there's hundreds of millions of stories like that? We didn't have time to get into your stories. If you are in Jesus tonight, you know where you are with him. You know God. You know who he is. You love him. And you know he loves you. You're an impossible convert too. You're an impossible convert. You're a walking, talking impossibility. You don't make sense. 
the obstacles that were present in your life that God overcame for your sake and for his glory. And there's so many, so many others of our stories. If the world really knew, if the watching world got to watch a documentary of your life and what was included in the documentary is all of the internal dialogue, the thoughts that you just instinctively that ambush you, the emotions that you feel, the resentments that you feel, the doubts that you feel, the, the woes that you experience, whatever. If the world knew all of that, what you do in your secret time, they would say of you what they would say of me. There's no way that the, the God of the Bible that I've heard about would have anything to do with her, not her. It's not his kind of girl. It's not his kind of guy. You're a walking impossibility if grace has changed your life. Jonah is a walking impossibility. God's grace has just done. God has just done in Jonah's life impossible things, a domino effect. You lose track of how many things that grace has done that were impossible in Jonah's life up to this point. And you could say that's God's mission. God's mission in the world, in a sense, is to do the impossible for the sake of his glory and for the sake of your good, for the world's good. He is regularly doing the impossible. And here's the thing. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I know you're here. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But hang with me. If you, if you are here and you know that you're a Christian, every time God describes your rescue, your salvation, what grace has done in your life, he uses the language of impossibility. He says you were dead but you've been brought to life in Jesus. How does that happen? I know how to go from life to death. We experience that every day. We hear about it every day. But how do you go from death to life? How do you go from spiritually dead to spiritually resurrected? He said you at one point in time were his enemy. His anger was set on you. He was not your friend. He was angry with you. He was angry with what you were doing with your life, with what you were doing with him. You had suppressed him. You had ignored him, edited him out of your life. And now he says, your son or your daughter, your beloved, he sings over you. Nothing will separate you from his love. How do you go from enemy to friend? How are you reconciled to a holy and just God who takes names and takes notes? It is an impossibility. And the Bible always describes it as an impossibility. We were alienated. We were far off. Now we've been brought near and made family. Jeremiah 13, 23. Jeremiah is a prophet in a really rough time of Israel. And he says to the Israelites, kind of rhetorically, he asks them, can the Ethiopian change his skin and can the leopard change his spots? And he says, if they can, then you can stop doing evil deeds and do good. Here's what he means by that. The leopard is no more capable of changing his own spots than a human being is capable of stopping doing evil, loving evil, desiring evil, scheming evil. It is impossible to morally transform yourself. Take whatever religion you want, take whatever spiritual road you're on. It is impossible, the God of the Bible says, to clean yourself up and to undo the damage that's been done a leopard could say, spots be gone, easier than a human could say, sin be gone, brokenness be gone, shame be gone, bad habits be gone. It is an impossibility on our own. 
Ezekiel 37, another prophet of Israel, God says, son of man, go up to this mountaintop and look into this valley. And he says, son of man, what do you see in this valley? And Ezekiel looks in this great, huge valley. And what he sees in it is sun bleached skeletons, bones everywhere, a battle that had happened there years before, and nobody had touched it since. And God says, this is Israel, my people, spiritually dead, lifeless. And he says, son of man, speak over these bones and say, live. And God breathes his breath over that valley. And this amazing series of events starts happening. Flesh starts appearing on these bones, tendons and ligaments and skin. And these people become alive and they walk forward. And God says, that is what I'm going to do to my people. Are you getting the, are you getting the point? <laughs> Salvation. Being made friends with God again is impossible. And I just quoted Jesus directly. Nicodemus comes to him at night and he says, how can I get on board with this thing you're doing in the world of remaking everything new? I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of you. I want to be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how do I be born again? And he says, with you, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he says the spirit, this resurrection spirit blows wherever he wills. This is not me deducing this. This is God. And apparently this is an important thing for us to hear. He wants us to hear him say, your restoration to him is impossible. He must overcome it. And only he is equipped and willing and able to overcome it. How is the pastor here at Redeemer? In Hal's office, there used to be this painting on the wall. It's not there anymore. Or it was a picture of a box turtle on top of a fence post. If you've been around Redeemer for much time, you've probably heard Hal talk about this turtle on a fence post. If you ever come across a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, you at least know one thing about that turtle. It didn't get there itself. Some outside force had to put that turtle there. You don't know anything else about it. If you come across a turtle walking on the ground, there's a lot of explanations. The turtle walked himself here or somebody put it there and it started walking or someone put it over there and it walked over here. But if you ever come across a turtle on a fence post, you know at least one thing that it did not get there by itself. Somebody put it there. If you're a Christian, you are a turtle on a fence post. You did not get to where you are with God. You did not get to where you are in terms of your maturation, your sanctification on your own. There is only one explanation and it is not you. And it is not me. It is one who picked you up and put you where you are, rooted you into where you are, grafted you into where you are. That's the explanation. It's an impossibility to get there on your own. But with God, all things are possible. Do you see yourself as this? Again, I'm talking to the folks in the room. You'd call yourself a Christian. Do you see your story this way? Do you see your life this way? Or do you see yourself as the turtle on the ground? Uh, I got a, I got a thousand ordinary explanations for why I am the way I am and why I'm at where I am with God. I have Christian parents. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to church. I've just never had big struggles or doubts with this Christianity or Bible stuff. I just, I've always believed it. You know, I was in youth groups when I got to UGA. I knew I wanted to be a part of a campus ministry. And as of yet, in all of the explanations, we have yet to hear anything that God has done for 
somebody who can't do anything for themselves. A lot of us, I will put myself in this category, see our salvation as perfectly ordinary, perfectly possible. God need not be involved in the story at all. I have plenty of ordinary explanations for who I am today and why I am where I am with God today. I'm a spiritual person. I love the connection I feel when I come to RUF or go to church. Friends, if that's you, you're the turtle on the ground and you are your explanation for why you are where you are. And that is something very altogether different than the gospel that's described in the scriptures. That has something very little to do with Christianity. Those are people fixing themselves, redeeming themselves, growing themselves, maturing themselves. Is that your story? Or did God pluck you up out of where you were, whether you remember it or not? I know some of you, you say I didn't have a dramatic conversion story. Oh, yes, you did, by the way, but I get what you mean. You remember, I don't have a huge conscious memory of running like Jonah did and then being swallowed by a fish and brought back. I get that. But, I, but we should stop saying we don't have a dramatic conversion story. I bet God would beg to differ. I bet Jesus would beg to differ. I bet the spirit of Jesus would beg to differ that what he did for you was not dramatic. And how he applied what he did for you on the cross was not dramatic. I think he would prefer if we say it was miraculous and impossible and unanticipated and magnificent. The only thing in Jonah's world that changed, the only variable that explains why the second time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, this time instead of running, he walks with God, not running away. The only explanation that I think the passage gives us, the only variable that explains why this time he walked with God instead of running away is that Jonah was different. God had done the impossible in Jonah. God had shown Jonah the depth of his own corruption and the depth of his own playing games with God and toying around with a tiny little God like a little Russian doll. You can always put it on the shelf when you want. God had exposed that. That's an impossibility. You can't have a true self-awareness apart from his mercy. God had chased Jonah when he said, I'm done with you. Forget it. I'm out of here. I quit. And he moved towards him, not away. God doesn't do what Jonah does. Jonah runs away from God. God doesn't run away from Jonah. He runs after Jonah. An impossibility. Jonah never talks to God, never prays, never repents. But he hardens himself and he jumps off the boat almost in an act of suicide. And God chases him down through the waters. An impossibility. God gives him the gift of repentance. We talked about the past month. An impossibility. God lets Jonah look upon him again. Jonah says, but I'm driven out of your sight. Yet the next words out of his mouth, I look upon you in your holy temple where you are present, where sacrifices are being made for my sins. He said, I have sunk to the depths, but he says, yet you have lifted my life out of the pit. The only reason Jonah, I think, goes with God to Nineveh to do an impossible task is because Jonah had just experienced God doing impossible things in his life. Here is why this matters to us. People who have experienced God doing impossible things start joining him on impossible missions. People who've experienced God doing the impossible in their lives start joining God on impossible missions in other people's lives. 
When you start to see what he's doing and what he has done in your life is miraculous, you start expecting the miraculous and the least likely of people around you. It's funny how we start expecting God to do in others what we see him doing in us. And it's funny how we don't expect him to do stuff in others that we don't see him doing in us. Both are contagious. If this is your mentality, like Jonah, I've begun to see the impossible obstacles God is just in spitfire, regular motion, overcoming, overwhelming, one after the other. You begin to see what grace is doing. Grace is doing all the things I've never been able to do. God is, without my permission, intruding in my story and my turf and setting me free in a thousand ways. You begin to see that. You begin to expect it in other people. And there are no more impossible converts in the world. Because you see that I was the impossible convert. I was the guy who was hardened, who never would have connected the dots and decided to give my life to Jesus. Apart from everything that he did leading up to that. See how when you see yourself as the impossible convert that God drew to himself, it starts evaporating all the other people at your job or at campus or in your family that you think, no way God is ever going to have anything to do with that person. That kind of semi-methed out waitress in the back of, or person in the back of the Taco Bell where you work or the person on campus or the sibling, the mom or the dad that ridicules you every time you go home. Their rescue starts becoming a little more possible when you see how impossible your rescue was. Paul says this. I know this is true. I'm not telling you stories. Paul says it. First Timothy 1.16. He says, <clears throat> Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I am the worst, he says in parentheses. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I am the worst. The apostle Paul says, and I received mercy for this reason. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to those who were to believe. Who are those who were to believe? You. Paul says, I'm the worst. <laughs> I'm at the end of the line. I was the most hardened, the most godless, the most screwed up, the most self-deceived, bigoted, morally superior to everybody else. All of you, your child's play. I'm at the end of the line. You're all in front of me. You're nothing. You're nothing for God's grace. You're no match for his grace. Do you know who I was? Do you know what obstacles still stay in my life? This is, this is how the Bible talks to us about what's happened in us. Seeing and personally experiencing the impossible obstacles that God overcame in your own conversion and that he daily overcomes as he sanctifies you and grows you and, and matures you. It will change everything in your day-to-day life. It will change who you think can become your friend. Are y'all like me? Every, every group of people you walk into, whether it's class or an in-real team or whatever else, you start making lists, especially if you think, how can I kind of live for Jesus in this class? You start making lists of who might be interested in what you have to say and who's definitely not interested in who you have to say or what you have to say, right? Do you do that? I do that. And it has a lot to do with appearances and how I stereotype people and what background I think they come out of. And I make a list of these are the impossible people. These are the Ninevites. No way in earth God has anything to do with these people. But these people, this guy's kind of spiritual. He's a religion major. He likes to talk about this stuff. 
Maybe there's, maybe there's hope for him. Or, you know, kind of like a really good moral, like just an awesome girl. I, everyone loves to be around her. She's not very religious, but she's got a great personality. Maybe, maybe there's hope there. You see how we start stratifying them, the world to the redeemable and the unredeemable? When we get to these places, it's because you see your own salvation is entirely possible, entirely ordinary, entirely natural. God need not enter into the people. And if he's not in the picture, then we start dividing the world up. John Calvin hits the point here when he says, um, if you can pull it up, he says, this is the turning point that will send you out of your story, of yourself, of your own little bubble. No one will be a willing prophet or teacher unless he is persuaded that God is merciful. That's the linchpin. You start believing that God is merciful to sinners and you will find yourself with a lot more friends and you'll find yourself inviting a lot more people to Bulldog Cafe after biology because you'll be able to repent of dividing the world up into the unredeemable who are not worth your time who are not worth you saying, hey, Wednesday night, come with me here. Sunday morning, I'll give you a ride. No? Okay. I'll ask you next week. That's cool with me. Whatever. This stuff has a huge on-the-ground impact. And the reason we don't, the reason we don't do these things is we don't see his mercy in our own stories, in our own lives. And we believe that we did, that we got ourselves to where we are. And so we think that for other people too. Jonah was finally convinced that God was merciful. There's a lot of mess left in Jonah's heart. Next week's our last week. We'll really see just a surprising twist in the story coming of how messed up Jonah still was. But Jonah did understand one thing. He understood finally that God is a God of mercy because he had experienced it. He had had his life spared time and time again. Every time God would have been well within his rights to just snuff him out. Jonah survives. He keeps breathing. His heart keeps beating. He keeps waking up. He keeps being spared. Jonah knows I did nothing to deserve this. This is only owing because of God's mercy. That's why Jonah followed God to a mission field that nobody in their right mind would have said was fruitful or worth the time. If he had sent you a support letter, you would not have given him money. Because you would have been like, this is a fool's errand. This is a waste of time. Jonah, don't you know what Jesus said? Count the cost before you go. No one there is going to repent. These are Ninevites. This is ISIS. They're not even Jews. They don't even believe in the God you believe in. They're brutal. They're wicked. They're hardened. They're always angling to try to invade Israel and kill us all. I'm not giving you a dime. There is no way on earth those people are changing. Jonah couldn't think that anymore. He couldn't think the way that you and I think anymore because he had been swallowed by this sovereign grace. And he'd had two or three weeks to think about it between the beach and Nineveh. And he couldn't get it out of his mind. This time he knew knew what God he was going with. This is not just something that changes us as individuals like, okay, now I can like start looking into my class different or thinking about my family different. Maybe I finally start praying for that sorority sister. This changes churches too. This changes cities. When we were out in New Mexico, there's this organization called the Southwest Church Planning Network. It started because of two churches, one in Dallas, one in Houston, that about 30 years ago got together and said, there's not a lot of gospel preaching um, 
churches out there with rich community who are patient with sinners who engage their cities. And we want to see this change. These are people who knew that God had done impossible things in their own lives and their own churches. They start this network. Their goal 25 years ago is by the year 2020, we will plant 75 churches and 30 RUFs at every major university in Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico. It's 2019. Clock's about to run out. They have planted 75 churches, all self-sufficient, all with a pastor, all growing. And they've almost planted their 30th RUF. The last one is about 100 meters above the Mexican border at UT El Paso. Are you tracking with me? Do you see how this stuff changes your life and your outlook and your world and what you attempt when you start believing that the true and living God is what he says he's like in his word. New York City, Tim Keller, we quote him a lot. The church that he pastors up there is Redeemer Presbyterian. His church a few years ago did something similar. He's committed to something called the Rise Campaign. You can Google it and learn more. But here's some two paragraphs I ripped off their website. A gospel movement in New York is on the rise. In 1989, when Redeemer began, less than 1% of city center uh, Center City New Yorkers attended a gospel teaching church compared to 25% of Americans nationwide. By 2009, that number had risen to 3%. 5% of Center City New Yorkers attend a gospel teaching church today. After a century of decline during which New York had become the least religious city in the U.S., we feel we're at a historic inflection point of a gospel movement in this city. Rise is a campaign to accelerate that movement toward a tipping point. Our vision is to see the body of Christ in Center City, New York, triple to 15%, which we believe might amount to a tipping point that does more to change individual lives, but enhances the long-term life of our city and everyone in it. We're beating a dead horse at this point. People who have seen God do impossible things in their life attempt impossible things with their God. They join him on impossible missions. I guarantee you the first time this idea came up, people snickered and laughed. In 1989, Keller tells a story. People in Pennsylvania where he's coming from laughed at him when he said, we want to go plant a church in Manhattan. In 1989, 1% of the population, today 5%. What if in 20 years, 15%? Who expects this stuff? This is crazy talk. But this is what God does. All of these people had finally caught on to what William Carey, who's known as the father of modern missions, said. As he went to India, he started the modern missions movement. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. The order is crucial. You reverse the order and you get the prosperity gospel. The little Joel Osteen thing. Uh, Go out there and attempt great things for God. Try to kind of make your little impact and God's just going to bless you. He's going to do whatever you want him to do. You want to start a Bible study on, in your fraternity house? Go start one. Man, God's going to convert your whole house. You want to you share the gospel with your dad who's a hardened atheist? Go do it. God's going to bless that. William Carey didn't say that. He said, expect great things from God. Once you know your God, once you know your father, his heart, his character, his reputation, his patterns, his desires you will find yourself moving out of your little comfort zone and taking the world because he is taking the world. The order is crucial. 
Know who your God is. And because you know who he is and what he's up to, go attempt great things. Don't attempt great things and expect him to baptize or bless whatever dream you had. But learn his dream and he'll go with you on it. I want to end with some practical stuff and then talk to those of you in the room who don't know where you are with this God. The gospel initiates a whole person's reevaluation of what you deem impossible and what you deem possible. You've now got to go back tonight and look in the mirror and all the lists you've made of what is impossible. I, repenting every day of these sexual desires, I feel how relentless and fierce they are. That's impossible. I can't keep doing this. Now you've got to go rethink that. With the spirit of Jesus living and working and fighting inside of you, is that in fact possible? And you also got to go and, re, uh, and, and reevaluate the things you, we thought are possible. We all think it's possible to run from God and to, to kind of live apart from him, to sever the umbilical cord and to have a thriving life apart from God. It's an impossibility. You cannot do it. It is death. This passage calls you to go and reevaluate every impossibility that you've stamped in your life and everything in your life you've stamped possible calls you to reevaluate that as well. Paul Tripp says, you've got to start remeasuring your potential. You do not base your potential in this world based on your resources. You base it on your Savior's resources. Your potential is not just what's owing to your training, your personality, your gifts, your passions. You are inhabited by Jesus himself. I guarantee you, I know this, Jonah is not responsible for the repentance, the whole scale repentance from the king to the cattle. That's the point of that silly language in there. Even the cattle are wearing sackcloth. From the top to the bottom, an entire city. Jonah did not do that, nor did the king of Nineveh. God did it, but he loved to do it through Jonah and to do it through the king. Jonah's potential was no longer captive to just Jonah. His potential was in the God who sent him. So is yours. Do you believe that? I want to end with this. What if you're here and you're like, yeah, I'm here because I didn't have an excuse because that person invites me every week and I got cornered tonight. Or you're here and you're like, I don't know where I am with God. I don't know where I am anymore. I know I'm running. I don't know if I'm running. What do you do with this passage? Where are you in this passage? Well, number one, welcome. Hope you keep coming back. Number two, watch. I just want to read this. And I want you to watch how God deals with outsiders. I want you to watch how he deals with his enemies. People who did not grow up knowing anything about him. People who he says spiritually do not know their left hand from their right are spiritually clueless. Here's what he does. Jonah goes into the city, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He tells you the truth. He will not do what our culture does and spin the truth or edit the truth or truncate the truth. He will tell you the truth. Why? Because your rebellion, your running, your sin, your autonomy, that is what is keeping you from him. And so he's going to talk about that until that obstacle is removed. He's not shaming you. He's not moralizing you. You didn't color inside the lines. He's talking about the obstacle that remains between him and you that must be removed and that you must start seeing. So, so Jonah goes and says something that's probably not nice to hear if you're a Ninevite. 40 days and the God of Israel is going to destroy the city. 
And the people of Nineveh believed God. Who expects that? Jonah knew he was being sent as an evangelist, not as a revivalist. He had no guarantee of how God would use this mission. But from the top to the bottom, everybody, everybody repents. Whole scale turning to God. He convicts them of their sin. He opens eyes that have been blind their whole lives. And for the first time, these people can tell their spiritual left hand from the right. They're not groping in the dark anymore. They've heard from God. They're not redefining God or saying, God to me is just this, or I like to believe in a God who's this. God's talked to them. And he has called them to respond. And he has restored their emotions. They're finally able to mourn things that you should mourn. Like evil and injustice and wickedness and violence and hatred of neighbor. And he calls them back to himself. Piece by piece and person by person. And you might think, well, that sounds cool, Ben. I like this little passage in here. That's pretty impressive that everybody repented, but not me. I don't have enough faith. I've never been like my brother or my mom or my dad. They just, they don't have any doubts or any struggles, but I do. I always have questions in the back of my head. I, all, I don't have certainty in anything. I can't have enough faith to repent and believe in this God. This is what I love about this. I love it. This is such pitiful repentance and profession of faith. It's silly. The king says, verse 9, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The pagan sailors in chapter 1 say, who knows? God might spare us if you pray to him. And you say, well, that sounds like silly faith. That doesn't sound like that's going to do the trick. That's not this robust, theological, beautiful, clean, Christocentric confession of faith. It's a pitiful confession of faith. And it's a profession of faith that changed these people's lives forever. Because it's never been about the quantity of your faith or the quality of your faith. Only the object of your faith that saves you. They had one and only one thing right. They were praying to Jonah's God for mercy. That's all they got right. Perhaps? What's with this perhaps? Of course. He says he's a savior of sinner. Why are you saying perhaps? Why are you saying if? They got that wrong. But they got this right. They had the right address. The savior of sinners. The the pursuer of the lost. The pursuer of the runner. And they got that he might be merciful. Well, there's something better than he might be merciful to you. He will be merciful to you. Because in Jesus Christ, he has chased you down. And he has outrun you. And he has removed every obstacle that stands between you and him. All that remains is what do you make of this? Is this hogwash? Is this BS? Is this inspirational stuff to try to get you through midterms? No. This is reality. This is truth. I want to end on a quote and we're done. Uh, William Williman, an old, uh, actually a current Methodist bishop. If we can pull this up because it's on there, one of those. If you've been going to a church or a ministry that preaches humanity and it improved, one thing you can change is find a church that preaches Christ and him crucified. If you've been going to a church or going to a ministry that tries to give you a little emotional pick-me-up or a little spiritual lift in your sails, and that's it, stop going. You're wasting your time. All they're doing is trying to finance you saving you. The church 
preaches the Bible, which preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected to do for sinners what no sinner can do for themselves. You are a walking, talking impossibility if you're in Jesus. And if you're not, don't you know that even tonight, God will do the impossible through a pitiful little prayer of I need you. Jesus, we pray this prayer. We pray that tonight and in the weeks ahead, the months ahead, you would be at work. You would open our eyes. You would bring conviction of sin in our hearts that we would stop thinking that you're out to get us, that you hate us, but see that even in you telling us hard truths, you love us. We pray that we would see your heart for sinners. We pray that we would know your power and your willingness and your ability and your strength to do the impossible. And I pray for all of us in here who still, after this, still think it's just ordinary. I'm a Christian because I was raised this way. I pray that you would blow their socks off. Leave them without any explanation for their faith, for their salvation, other than you. Do this because you love them and do this because you're good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.